This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ein, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavori, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavori. We continue with discussing Shelotu Tshuvot of the Sephardi chief rabbis of Israel in the 20th century. Today we will discuss Shut Shelotu Tshuvot of Rav Mordechaliyahu, the former Rav Rashi Rishon Tzion. He was born in Yerushalayim in 1928 or 1929. The son of a great Mekubal, a big Tamit Chacham, who passed away when Rav Mordechai was still a child. He learned in Yeshiva the famous Svardi Yeshiva Parat Yosef, and he was very close to Rav Ezra Atiyah, one of the Gedolim of that time. He had a connection, very close relationship with the Baba Sali. And as you would expect from a, a Svardi growing up in Yerushalayim who learned in the Svardi yeshivas, he was certainly well accepted in the Svardi community. As a, at a young age, he had writing, he had correspondence with Svardi Gedolim. We've seen a tshuva that Rav Nisim and he discussed an issue many, many years ago. But interestingly enough, he also had a very close relationship with the Chazonish, of B'nai Brak. In 1960, when he was fairly young, he became Dayan in Be'er Sheva and served there for a few years. He then joined the Bet Din Hagadol of Yerushalayim and remained in that position until he became the Rishon Tzion in 1983 in 1993. Now, of course, Rav, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, like other great rabbinic person, person, persons, people, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu was involved in um, many public issues, affairs, and sometimes there was some controversy about things that he did and said. Of course, we are going to discuss only the Shailotu Tshuvot that have been printed at is the topic of our general um, shiurim this year. In general, Rav Mordechai Liao followed the psak of the Ben Ishchai, and this was opposed to the general position of Rav Avad Yosef. As we recalled learning before, Rav Avad Yosef wrote shuvos, and he wrote, in fact, many comments about the Ben Ishchai and explained in the general terms that today we should pass him like Rabbi Yosef Cairo, Lachzira Taral Yoshna, to the psak of the Rav Veret Yisrael, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, whereas Rabbi Mordechai Chaliyahu has tshuvos where he relates specifically to the fact that learning the Ben Ishchai and passing like the Ben Ishchai should be our, our goal today of his Sephardi community, of course. Now, the tshuvos of Rav, of Rav Mordechai Chaliyahu are really only becoming now to print a number of different volumes 
of Mamar Mordechai and shoot like this are being are planned, and they expect to see a, a large uh, amount, uh, ten volumes. I think they're talking about of Chuvas of Mordechai In the meantime, I would like to discuss only one volume of Chuvas that came out with, which is a genre by itself, a new type of Shelotu Chuvot that I think may be the beginning of almost a new concept of Shelotu Chuvot. The Chuvot that I'm talking about are called Shelotu Chuvot Harav Harashi. And it's an assembly, assembled together various Chuvos that were posed to Rav Mordechai as he served as the Rav Harashi from 1950 to 1953, these particular questions were asked. As we said, he was the chief rabbi from 1983 to 1993. The last three years of his role as the Rav Rashi, they have a, li- a number of chuvas that were written to him. Now, what marks this as a, in my mind, as different than ch- classic chuvas that we've seen until now, is that some of the chuvas here are actually letters that are written to people and uh, sometimes people ask for advice, people ask the just general comments, and they printed this as Sheilotu Tshuvot, as Halachic Responsa. Now, most of these Tshuvas were written to the, the questions were written to the Rav HaRashi Yisrael, HaRishon Letzion, and the answers were given by Rav Mordechai but in many of the cases, many of these chuvos were written by one of his assistants, Rav Shmuel Zafrani, who discussed the question with the Rav, but he wrote a very brief answer. These answers also are very, very short. They discuss halacha lamasa. There are hardly any sources at all quoted in the chuvos. Rav Mordechai went over and reviewed the Sefer, and he there on every on many pages there is a uh, brief comment from Rav Eliyahu himself. He'arot Maran Harishon Letzion Letshuvot, where very often he just cites a source. Also, very very briefly, you do not see the the give and take discussion of chuvas that you find in the classic chuvas of the Noda Behuda, of the Chassam Sofer, or in the 20th century in Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, or in other chuvas, you just see a very quick psak halacha. But as I said before, some of the questions seem strange to be printed in a volume called Sheilotu Chuvot. I'll give you uh, two or three examples. In one of the chuvas of this sefer, in Sheilotu Chuvot Harav HaRashi, Someone wrote to him and said he has a new pshat in the Gemara Kola Kovea Makomli Tfilato Aloke Avraham Baado Beezrael. Now this fellow who lives in Yerushalayim and also one of the characteristics of this particular sefer is that the names of the people are generally written only in initials Rashi Tevot and very often the place itself is not mentioned where the tshuva came from. Of course, for historians, this presents a little bit of a problem because, as we said, part of the interest in Sheilotu Tshuvot as a scholastic study is because of the sociological and historical implications and therefore places and dates and questions and, and people are really important. 
but in because of a certain type of tzniyut, they did not write the names of the people in this tshuvot. And here this fellow, Yud Yud from Yerushalayim, wrote a whole new idea, a pshat of his, of his own, on the Pasuk HaReninat Kvodecha, and to explain the concept of Kola Kovea Makom Litfilato. He asked Rav Mordechai Eliyahu for an answer, and he said, I'd prefer an answer in writing, because I have a collection of my own of Sheilot Shuvot, and I plan to print my own Sefer, and I'd like your response. The response which is printed in this Sefer is that your letter, your Chidush, was brought to before Rav, Avad, before Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, and we wish you Bracha Natzlacha in Ruchnius and Gashmius. There is no, they don't relate at all to the discussion. There's not a halachic issue here at all involved. And it's printed in a sefer of Sheilot Tshuvot. Another tshuva relates to a young lady who is in the middle of Sheirut Umi in Eilat. And she asked Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, inasmuch as she's already past high school, and when she is in this Sheirut Umi in Eilat, it's difficult for her to meet people with whom she would like to uh, get married eventually. She's looking for uh, a shidduch. So, would it, it would, might hurt her chances of meeting the right fellow if she uh, spends another year in a lot. I don't see exactly what the question, the halachic question is. It seems to be a question of advice. What would he recommend other circumstances? And here the tshuva, the sheila, when the young lady asked her question, she also included a letter and closed the letter from the local principal of the school, who apparently was dealing with her and uh, somehow took care of the of the people of Shirut Lomi. So his answer was, if you have a lot of bitachon and you feel that you'll find your shidduch and you're doing good work, then it's all right to continue. But Rav Mordechai did not even write this letter to the young lady in question. He sent the letter to this principal and he explained, he gave a, an allusion why he only wrote it to him and not to her. But again, this seems to be a question of, of advice more than what we would call the classic concept of Sheilotu Tshuvot. Some of the questions, obviously, written to the Rav HaRashi, involved government, Israeli government issues or situations that certainly relate to a psak of the Rabbanut HaRashit. And very often, Rav Mordechai just refers you to the decision of the Rabbanut HaRashit. Sometimes when the question had not been formulated clearly before by the Rabbanut Rashid, he mentions that he wants to consult with his partner, Rabbi Avram Shapiro, who was the Rav Rashi at that, Ashkenazi at that time, and they'll come up with an answer. One of the questions that was asked was the concerning the practice of having Yom HaShoah on, in the month of Nisan. Now, originally, the Rabbanut did not want a day in the month of Nisan to commemorate 
b'shoah. Because, after all, Nisan is a month where you don't say Tachanun. Nisan is a month of Gulas Yisrael. So, many felt it would not be appropriate to have a day in memory of the Shoah in the month of Nisan. The fellow who asked the question asked, maybe because it is Yom HaShoah, he accepted as a very simple uh, understanding that, of course, the decision of having Yom HaShoah in Chodesh Nisan is what is done. And therefore, he said, maybe we should say Tachnan. And then he asked, why is it that many Rabbanim do not want to take place in the ceremonies of Yom HaShoah? And Rabbi Mordechai's answer was, of course you do not say Tachnan. You do not say Tachnan this month. And here again, he just quotes the Shulchan Aruch. And he said that although the Rabbanut HaRashit really wanted the day of Yom HaShoah to be on Asarah B'Tevet, but because since it was accepted by the community to have it in Chavzai Nisan, therefore we should allow the ceremonies on that day, but nevertheless it would be more appropriate to have what we what we call the Yom HaKadish HaKlali, Yom HaShoah, to have on Asarah B'Tevet. In the same question, the fellow asked Rav Mordechai, what is his opinion about Sherut Lumi and the army? Now, Rav Mordechai Liao refers you in another tshuva to the decision of the chief rabbinate of Israel from er, much earlier, from the time of Rav Herzog, which was opposed to sending women into the Israeli army for reasons of Sneus. In this tshuva, where he was asked about Sheirut Umi as well, to the best of my knowledge, there had not been an official position of the chief rabbinate. When I was uh, first in Ali, when I first came in Aliyah in the early 70s, so there was a big discussion about Sheirut Umi that I remember from then, and some people actually wrote that Sheirut Umi is Yeharek Vayavar. They considered it a type, an offshoot of Vizrayu, of Giliarayos, and they felt that it, you could say Yeharek Vayavar. Now it seems to me a very far stretch to say such a thing, but Rav Mordechai just says because we know the dignity of a Jewish woman is inward. Therefore, it is not appropriate for a, young, for a woman, for a girl to go to the army or to Sheirut Lumi because there is a an ethical obligation or a communal obligation to be in a certain place, in a certain time, when other people decide. And he felt it was not appropriate for a, for a young lady to be in that situation. Now, I don't know if this is the official position of the chief rabbinate of Israel in general, but there's no doubt that Rav Mordechai Eliyahu here says clearly that it's not right for a young lady to go to Sheirut Lumi. Now, we saw a different tshuva where the girl asked him for advice. Should she stay in Shenabet in Eilat in the Sheirut Lumi? And his answer there was, if she has Bitachan, 
she could stay in Shevet Lomi. So I don't think he, he also took an extreme position about Shevet Lomi, that it was really, really terrible, but I thought he felt it was not right. In the case of a young lady who asked for advice, he said she could stay a Shana Bet. The one area where Rav Mordechai was very takif, and you see this a number of places in the Chuvos, was when, when he was asked about co-education. Schools on all levels of having boys and girls in the same classes. He was asked this in many, many Chuvos. In this particular book, at least four times the issue was raised. In um, in Chuva Tezayin, they talked about an elementary school where a certain Moshav felt that Lichatchila it would be better to have coeducational schools, and they said they wrote to him, "Is it any? Is there any source to say that Lichatchila it's better to have coed schools?" The answer was written by Rav Zafrani in the name of Rav Mordechai and he wrote that the Rav is shocked by the custom that people think that it's even better to have co-educational classes. And he said, it's obvious, we know that there is an absolute obligation to separate. If it's not possible because the classes are too small, then the parents should add money, pay extra tuition, in order to be able to to, to uh, separate the classes. He emphasizes in another tshuva that this, I do not mean this as a chumrah, this is the absolute din. And again, I said the, the sources are rather limited, but in this particular tshuva, he, he has, that Rav Zafrani wrote, he wrote to look in the safe of Rav Kook, Ezrat Kohen, Siman Lamed. So I followed that instruction. Look up what did Rav Kook speak about the chuv about coeducation, and to my surprise, Rav Cook said nothing. The question was asked about mixed dancing. Now, to the best of my knowledge, no Rav ever came out in a tshuva would would permit mixed dancing even by the Evid. There, Rav Cook, of course, said that it's a terrible thing and it should be stopped, etc., etc. But from there to discuss separate classes seems to me a major difference. The other reference that he has is to look up the Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch Evan Ezra Simon Chafalif. And there it talks about distances that should be kept between men and women, certain laws of how to re- relate between men and women. But sources to say that uh, coeducation is usher are not found in this tshuva. And as I said before, this tshuva was repeated a number of times. In a, in another tshuva about the same topic, on Simon Memtet, again the question was asked, and he just repeated that we see that separate education is successful. Some people think that there are benefits in, in co-education, but you see, we see no. We, we see empirically that students who learn in separate schools do better, and therefore he insisted on the uh, separation in the schools. And again he was asked, and again he answered in uh, Tshuva Ayintes, 
But there, he emphasizes that the, uh, he mentions the Gemara in Sukkot that talks about the Mechitza that he had in the Beis HaMikdash at the time of the Simchas Bas There he emphasizes they should have separate buildings, at least separate entrances, separate wings. They should not, not only should they not have separate classes, but they should have uh, complete separation. And uh, again, he repeats in Tshuva Kuflametet that it's an absolute obligation to separate classes, and here he emphasized, This is not a chumrah that I look at as a chumrah, but I believe this is the ikar adin. And again, this tshuva was written without any sources, written by Rev Zafrani. We also expect, in such a sefer, to see tshuvas based on what we would call today Psak Sfaradi. After all, Rav Mordechai Yao was the Sfaradi chief rabbi, the Rishon Letzion. And you would expect to find Psakim addressed him by Sfaradim and an appropriate Psak for the Olama Sfaradi. We have seen Chuvas of Rav Avadia, And as I mentioned before briefly, there is a difference between the Derech Psak of Rav Mordechai Yao, who followed the Ben Ishchai a great deal, and the, and the, and the general kivun of Rav Ovadio, who quotes sources, uh, really, uh, without an end, and bases himself very much on the psak of the Bet Yosef. One of these issues would be, uh, the question that we actually discussed in the Shi'ur on Rav Ovadio Yosef. The question was about having weddings in the period between Shivasa Batamuz and Tishabav. Now, until Rosh Chodesh Av, uh, to put it uh, more clearly, we know the Ashkenazi custom is not to have any weddings from Shivasa Batamus until after Tishabaf. The Svardi custom that Rav Avadya tried, uh, I don't know to what degree of success, but he tried to enact that Svardi weddings could be held in Israel from Shivasa Batamus until Rosh Chodesh Av, based on the Minag Svarat, Rav Mordechai was asked specifically if you can have a wedding the night after Shiva Sabatamas. Let's say Shiva Sabatamas was a Tuesday, so Tuesday night could you have a wedding? Now, the person who wrote the question just assumed automatically that you could have a wedding during the period between Shiva Sabatamas and Rosh Chodesh Av. The only question was could you have the, the wedding after Shiva Sabatamas because the assumption would be that many, some of the people might come before the fast is over, maybe they'll taste some of the food, maybe it'll encourage a, um, a lack of observance of Shivasa Batamas as it should be. Of course, the question was asked that we're going to make the wedding Shivasa Batamas after, after Tzay nevertheless, maybe people would come early, people would eat, whatever it was. The answer was given that the psak of the Rav Rishon Letzion HaRav HaRashil Yisrael, you should not have Chupa V'Kedushin from Shivasa Batamuz at all. And of course, here the source is quoted just by name, the Ben Ishchai and the Knesset HaGdola, both Paskin, that even the Sephardi custom should be, as Rav Mordechai pointed out, not to have weddings 
from Shivasa Batamas. Other issues where Rav Mordechai would differ with Rav Avad Yosef because of their general kivun in Psak would be the area of women making brachas on mitzvahs from which they're exempt. Now we talked about two different types. One, the question of making a bracha on a mitzvah from which women are exempt. A mitzvah sasei shazman grama. There, Rav Avadya said clearly, we paskin like the chachmei svarad, that you do not make such a bracha. It would be considered bracha batala. And I don't have any references of Rav Mordechai To the contrary, I would assume that he would agree. But the question would be, brachos that perhaps women are exempt from, but nevertheless, they may say, or the question is, could they say, because they don't have the bracha of the words vitzivanu. Now, for example, by lulav, women are exempt from lulav, and the problem would be a double issue, as we mentioned last week, could the women make the bracha asher kichanu mitzvah vitzivanu when they're, you can't say vitzivanu when they're not commanded? And secondly, it would be considered a bracha she'enot tzricha, a bracha that's not necessary. And if, in, if a bracha she'enot tzricha would be wrong even if it doesn't have the words vitzivanu. So the first tshuva that relates to this is simen kuftesvav, and the question was asked about psuke de zimra. Since women assumedly were exempt from Psuke de Zimra, could a woman, a Svardi lady, make the bracha of Unbarak Shamar and Yishtabach? The question was asked by a young lady who davens, says she tries to daven every day. Could she? Now, again, here the question would, really would be divided into two parts. Should a woman say Psuke de Zimra? Is it really required? And assuming it's not required, then could a woman make this bracha even though it doesn't have the words vitzivano, but would it be considered a bracha shenet tzricha? The answer was given by Reb Shmuel Zafrani in the name of the Rishon Letzion, and he wrote, quoting his own work, Sefer Halacha, Chelek Beis, it says a woman who can daven should, can make the bracha on Psuka de Zimra because it's part of the davening. Now, when you wrote that, it seems to me it should be clarified. If it says, Isha chayevet betfila, and he also wrote, it's chelik me'atfila, then it might not be sufficient to say that a woman may make the bracha on Baruch Shama Yishtabach, but rather women should say Psuke de Zimra and should make the brachos. Again, the text that was written by Reza Frani says, She could say the tefillah with the brachos. Now, the same issue was raised about Birchos Kriyashma. Birchos Kriyashma have the same, similar issue. And again, you would have to discuss it in two levels. Are women chayev? And if they're not chayev, could they say the brachas? The question was asked in Simon Kuf Chet. And again, he answered, a woman has to daven one time a day. That's the psak that Rav Mordechai gave, Rav Ovadia Paskin that way also, based on the Shittas Harambam, that women are chayev and tefillah once a day. But he said, of course, that women can daven three times a day.
And he said, a woman can say, Birchas Kriyashma, Ki Abrachas Hem Chelk Metfila, Vaisha Chayvet Betfila. And again, I, I would like to know, does he think that women really should say those brachas or are allowed to say the brachas? One could argue that you really should say the bracha and not just are allowed to say the bracha. The last question that I would like to discuss to found in this sefer, there, of course, there are many, many other tshuvas that are interesting, is a very uh, in, important question that was asked to a number of gedolim of the 20th century. Namely, are you allowed to bring a seeing eye dog into a shul? The uh, question was written by a person who needed an immediate answer because the shul in which he davened opposed bringing the dog into shul and he said it was difficult to leave the dog outside. Rav Zafrani wrote the tshuva in the name of Rav Mordechai Liao, and he explained here a little bit of a preface. Beit Knesset is called the Mikdash Ma'at. And therefore, we have to be careful of the kavod, of the kedusha of the Beit Knesset. The Shulchan Aruch Paskins, and here the source of the Shulchan Aruch and the Kafachayim, he quotes an Arachayim in Chumash, that a person should not enter the shul carrying a stick. But he said, obviously, for a person who's ill, a person who's blind, you could carry a stick. Today, a blind person has a, has a dog, a seeing-eye dog. Could you bring him into the shul? Rav Mordechai said, if it's possible to keep the dog outside of the shul, that would be better. If there's no such possibility, you're allowed to bring him in but the dog should be muzzled, should be tied up, and should be kept adjacent to the person himself. If possible, you should even put him in a cage. But, and you have to obviously be careful of not only of the dignity of the shul, the cleanliness of the shul, etc. In general, he said it would be a good idea, it's a very important thing to help unfortunate people and enable them to come to Davin even though sometimes it might create a little bit of unpleasantness for some of the people. But he said, the bottom line is you could bring this dog into shul when necessary. Rav, uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein in Chelek Aleph of Chuvos Igwas Moshe, Arachayim Chelek Aleph, also paskened with a, uh, of course, Rav Moshe's Chuvos were written in a different style, uh, longer discussion, not a very long discussion, but nevertheless a longer discussion, where Rav Moshe also paskened that a seeing-eye dog was, would be allowed to bring it to shul. Interestingly enough, I don't know if it's printed any place, but I remember hearing from Rav Soloveitchik that he himself was opposed to bring a seeing-eye dog into shul. He had a feeling that in his own house, if he had a blind person entering his house, he would prefer the person leaving the dog outside, and obviously the person's needs would be taken care of by the host in the house. And he felt the dignity of a shul should not be less than a person who is a visitor in someone else's house. And since the Rav felt that it would be appropriate for a blind person to leave his dog outside a private domain, he felt he should do that in a shul as well. 
perhaps it's not so much a question of uh, understanding sources and pasking halacha. Maybe it's really a question of how they viewed uh, bringing a seeing eye dog into shul. The Rav felt it was disrespectful and other people felt it was respectful. So it's not so much a question of sources and halacha, but rather a question of understanding the situation in which they're felt. B'chol mekreh, the bottom psak of uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein and Sheibadah Lechaim Tovim, the Rav Harashi, Rishon Lassian Rav Mordechai Yao, that it is permitted to take a seeing eye dog into Shul.